My name is Sarah Armstrong and this is episode 2 of A Summer of Spying. In this series I explore the evidence presented during a court case held in 2020 during the pandemic and on which I was a juror. In this episode we hear from two witnesses who were inside the house and other recorded evidence. Witness 1 is the sister of Witness 3 and in her early 50s. Witness 1 looks anxious as if she doesn't want to be in court at all. She is asked to speak up a few times. The sound issue is more difficult for the judge sitting behind her than for me a few feet in front. When she does occasionally look up, she makes very little eye contact and generally looks at her hands clasped in her lap. She closes her eyes when her 999 call is played. When the defence counsel speaks to her very gently, she twists her mouth in disgust as if she's not certain he deserves a reply. There is a screen in front of the witness box so the defendant can't see her. I remember her as being dressed in a blouse, skirt and cardigan, but I'm unsure if I just think that's the kind of thing she'd wear. Witness 2 and Witness 3, a same-sex couple who have been together for many years, moved into the house just a few weeks before the incident. It is the night in question and they have all finished dinner a bit after 8pm. Witness 1 is in the kitchen getting coffee with her brother, Witness 3. She hears muffled sounds outside and banging for a time before she realises it is coming from right outside and is deliberately focused on their house. When a side window is smashed in, she calls the police. The man, a stranger that none of them knows, then smashes through the toughened glass of the back door. The other witnesses are on the stairs. Witness 1 tries to stop the man, telling him that he must have the wrong house, that they don't have drugs or money, but the man goes past her, the knife flailing, and tells her to fuck off. They are at the bottom of the stairs. The stranger is a couple of feet away, and she can smell he's been drinking. The man is brandishing a knife and bat, waving them about, bashing both against the inner glass banister, which has a metal handrail, and against the wall of the stairwell. She remains at the bottom, or at the lower steps, but as the stairs are surrounded by glass, she has a clear view up the stairs and onto the landing. When he is on the stairs, the man lunges towards Witness 2 with the knife. She sees an arc of blood spurt from Witness 2's neck, and she thinks his artery has been cut. She describes again, with physical actions, the defendant lunging towards Witness 2 with a stabbing motion. She is on the phone to the police the whole time, getting frustrated that they are taking so long, and also trying to keep them updated on what is happening upstairs. Now the homeowners recognise him as the builder who had worked on their house. She describes Witness 2 trying to placate the defendant, talking to him. Calm down, this is not like you. The police still aren't there. A section from the external CCTV is played for us, which ties into this point. There's a burst of noise from upstairs, and Witness 1 is shouting and sounds much more panicky than before. When asked why, she's unclear about what was going on, how things had changed right then. The police arrive. She is cross-examined. Didn't you tell the police you saw the arm of Witness 3 cut? Yes, it wasn't him, it was Witness 2. It was confusing, it all happened so quickly. How did the defendant get his head injury? I don't know, there was a lot of glass when he smashed the door. He must have cut his head when he came in. Did you see a cut or blood on the defendant's head when he came in? No, I didn't. The car on the right, which is untouched, belonged to her. 
There are three types of recordings which fill in the sounds and images of each testimony we hear. As well as the recording outside the house, the external CCTV camera captures some of the sounds inside. You can hear Witness 1 talking to the defendant, but not exactly what she says. You can more clearly hear him say fuck off, and there is what sounds like the resonant noise of banging metal, maybe the bat against the metal handrail or perhaps the wall. You can hear muffled arguments and someone, who we are told is witness too, saying calm down, calm down. There are sounds which get quieter and louder, and it's hard to tell what is happening once they are all upstairs, deeper inside the house. From the 8.12pm 999 call made by Witness 1, there is a more intimate version of the same sounds heard on the CCTV recording. She refers to herself as living at the house, and called it our house throughout the conversation, but in court described her presence there as being an invited dinner guest. The 999 operator asks, are there any children in the property? She answers, not yet. There is also a much stronger sense of her bewilderment. Someone's stabbing my brother. They had been eating dinner and making coffee, and now someone is stabbing her brother. You can hear the confusion, but she tries to relay what she learns, telling them that it's the builder, that it's about money. The noise between the men lessens, and she seems calmer too, as if now that there is a reason behind all of this, there can be a solution. It's not random, it's not a stranger, there will be an explanation somehow. Suddenly in the background there is an escalation. The noise gets louder and someone upstairs is shouting, maybe screaming. It's on both the CCTV recording and the phone call. Her voice becomes panicky but she doesn't seem to know what is happening. Her pleas for the police to arrive get more urgent. At one point as she waits for the police she seems to go outside the house because we hear her talking to someone else. She calmly asks them for help because someone is stabbing her brother, and the 999 dispatcher repeatedly and urgently tells her not to let anyone else inside the house. He repeats that the police are nearly there. I wonder about that person. We don't hear them speak in the background of the call. We never hear anything else about this. What did they think was happening in the house? She sounds resigned rather than scared. Did they believe her? The call seems to go on forever. The police have gone to a nearby but incorrect address and arrive after 11 minutes. Witness 3 also makes a 999 call just after the incident starts explaining how an unknown man is breaking into the house. Once he starts to struggle with the defendant the phone is dropped and remains on the landing. It looks to be face down in the images. The sound is very unclear. It is suggested that the defendant is heard to say something like, come on big boys, but I can't make it out. The police arrive at 8.23pm. Police body cameras then take over the audio and give the only view we have inside the house, apart from the crime scene photographs. An officer goes up the steps to the front door where witness one is waiting, the phone she's just been using still in her hand. She seems subdued, quiet, directing them in. The officers go to the rear of the house and up the stairs. It's quiet there too. The police open a door on the landing and there are the three men in a dark bathroom lit up by the opening door. There is blood everywhere. It's a confusing scene but somehow they identify the witnesses and send them outside the bathroom 
leaving the defendant inside. Can I just explain myself, he asks. A woman officer interrupts, no, you cannot. His hands are handcuffed behind his back, stacked one above the other, and he is searched. He says, sorry about this, boys and girls. The defendant's language suggests he's one of them, that they will understand his reasoning once he gets the chance to explain. No one seems at all concerned. There is no urgency or fear in the tone or actions of the police officers. Witness 2 has been taken downstairs. Witness 3 is still on the landing, which seems odd. The defendant has a bloody head wound, but there's no urgency about that either, and he is taken outside. There are lots of flashing lights on police cars. The officers discuss who will take the defendant. His handcuffs are undone and fixed at the front, and he is placed in the car. The conversation on the way to the police station is intermittent. The defendant is confused, but seems eager to please, eager for someone to take his side. He claims to have been a boxer for twenty years, but he wasn't. He claims that no one got hurt, but they did. He claims that he didn't take a weapon, because he just wanted to have it out with them. He took two. Another police body camera ascends the stairs, showing maybe half a dozen people on the landing. A search is made for the knife which has been kicked into one of the bedrooms on the right, out of the way. The sweep of the camera reveals a lot of blood on the carpet, a few drips of blood on the glass banister. A snatch of conversation is caught. Defendant. They hit me with a bat. Witness 3. Well, he broke into my house and stabbed my friend. Another police body camera downstairs in the kitchen shows Witness 2 being examined. His T-shirt is soaked in blood, but he is smiling as further injuries are identified. He claims not to have felt them as they happened, and he doesn't seem in pain now. He is calm, a little shaky. As we watch Witness 1 fetch him a glass of water, we can see her brother, Witness 3, in the background, a tea towel wrapped around one hand. Witness 2 takes a sip of water and his hands are trembling. Witness 1 takes a glass away and drops it. It shatters on the floor and everyone jumps. The camera moves, showing Witness 3 on his knees. A new man walks into the scene, distressed. He is apologising for the defendant and it turns out he's his brother. He says that the defendant's stepfather is also there. They clearly feared something was going to happen at this house, but he wasn't expecting this. He's visibly shocked by the scene he finds. He says, I'm so sorry. Witness 1 tells him it isn't his fault. She seems very calm, considering. Nothing else is heard about the brother. There is some mention of the stepfather returning to the house, but it's not clear when or why, and the defendant has already been taken in for questioning. Witness 2 is the partner of Witness 3, in his late 50s. Witness 2 is friendly, eager to please, and he smiles a lot, the same as he appears in the videos. His answers are thoughtful, but a little vague at times. He wears a pale shirt and trousers. He nods a lot, and wrinkles his nose when concentrating or considering how to disagree. He makes occasional eye contact with the jury. While he seems alert and not very anxious, he also uses a screen so the defendant can't see him. He begins by explaining how they'd moved in recently. On this night, they've just had dinner in the breakfast room, the three of them. The other two witnesses are getting coffee from the kitchen, 
when witness too hears muffled sounds outside. The ground floor of the house is elevated, so it's difficult to hear where noises come from. He realises that it's from outside on the driveway and looks out of the front window. He doesn't recognise the man. Maybe he had a hat on or his hair was different. Witness too moves backward towards the breakfast room and is standing in the doorway of the study when he sees the window in there smashed. He moves away from that room and is standing in the hallway when he sees the back door also being smashed in. He doesn't recognise the man who comes through. He looks like a madman. Witness 2 is chased upstairs with Witness 3 by the defendant and says that he must have first been attacked with the knife while running up the stairs. When he reaches the landing, he turns, and that's when he realises it's the defendant coming up the stairs, that he knows him. Witness 2 is trying to calm things down, talk to the defendant. There has been a dispute over payments for the work he'd done on the house, but it is with the solicitors. They are doing things properly. Witnesses 2 and 3 stand side by side on the landing, trying to disarm the defendant. Witness 2 has the hand holding the bat, and Witness 3 has the hand holding the knife. Witness 2 doesn't even see the knife, or notice he's been cut until someone points out the blood. None of the knife wounds were accidental, he says. The defendant was trying to cut Witness 2. Witness 2 confirms that the heavy-looking kitchen knife with a smudge of blood on the handle and the dented metal baseball bat being held up in court are the items the defendant brought with him. Witness 2 reports that both he and his partner then forced the defendant to drop the knife by squeezing his hand and it is kicked away. Then they push the defendant into the bathroom. Their intention is to lock him in, but the lock is on the other side, which makes no sense now, he says, thinking about it. There is a scuffle, and at some point the defendant hits Witness 2 on the head with the bat, causing Witness 2 to fall to the floor. The police find the lump later when going through his injuries. He is trying to get hold of the defendant's arm, and the defendant bites him. There is a photo showing a vivid, full bite mark on his arm, which he says didn't fade for months. Witness 2 continues, saying there was a period in the bathroom when it was quieter, and the defendant says something like, but doesn't the bathroom look good? The defendant said he's on tablets, having problems at home. It's a surreal conversation. The police arrive. They've been unable to live in the house since. He is cross-examined. Did Witness 3 have the bat at any point? I don't think so. Could Witness 3 have hit you with the bat? No, he would have said sorry. How did the defendant injure his head? He must have knocked it when we pushed him into the bathroom, maybe on the doorframe or the bath. Did witness three hit the defendant with the bat? I don't think he'd do that. Did you have your hands round the defendant's throat? I can't see myself doing that. Wouldn't it make sense for witness three to have caused the damage to the doorframe of the bathroom if he had the bat? He wouldn't have caused damage to the house. He is very meticulous. Even in the middle of all this? Yes. A number of documents are provided for us, which we keep in our plastic folders and leave in the courtroom at the end of every day. A list of agreed facts, not under debate, to avoid duplication. Where and when the incident occurred, injuries received, transcripts of both 999 calls. The interview transcript between the police and the defendant held the afternoon after the incident. 
Judges' notes to aid deliberation. Photo set one. Low-quality photocopied images, including the house, injuries, and a text message from the defendant dated August, asking for money. Photo set two. A fuller replacement set of higher-quality images, including the house and injuries, with a number description list, but not including the text message. This document is not paginated, so a period of time is set aside for us all, individually, to write page numbers on the document to match the descriptions. I managed to turn two pages at once, completely messing up this simple task, and have to surreptitiously renumber everything. There are also descriptions of the injuries to the three men involved. Witness 2 has a small cut to the right side of his neck, no stitches needed. 11 stitches to the cut on his right wrist, has a significant amount of blood. And 5 stitches to a cut in his right armpit, where there is also a significant amount of blood. There is a bite mark to his right bicep, a bump on his head, and he has grazed knees. Witness 3 has lacerations to his fingertips and thumbs. The defendant has a cut on his head, with a significant amount of blood, and marks below his eyes. None of the injuries are technically serious, during the case they are called superficial, but to someone unused to seeing and dealing with injuries, the amount of blood seems important to mention, because it has an impact. This is the final visual evidence we are to receive. All the remaining evidence will be spoken. Episode 2 of A Summer of Spying is the second of five weekly episodes which explore what happened in a court case tried in 2020 from the point of view of juror and author Sarah Armstrong. In the next episode we hear from two more witnesses and examine how COVID-19 changed the way the courtroom worked. If you can't wait to hear what happened or you'd like more background information on the story behind the case, Check out the show notes for a link to the ebook which accompanies this podcast, published by Sandstone Press.